Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. So I am uh, recording this on Wednesday afternoon, day three of the Democratic Convention. So let's start there. I think the first two days of the convention have been really terrific. And I think the convention team led by Stephanie Cutter, who was our guest on this podcast a few weeks ago, uh, and so many others have done a really remarkable job of adjusting to our first virtual convention. I actually think there's parts of it that I vastly prefer to the way we do convention. I thought the roll call, you know, where we saw all of our states and territories was inspiring and fun and imaginative. I think that uh, Joe Biden's speech last night uh, being in an empty classroom was more compelling than being behind a podium. I think a lot of the speeches are shorter, and that's great. I think that's more interesting to people who are actually watching the convention and uh, easier for people who are going to check it out afterwards or have a part of a speech shared by a friend or family member. Uh, they'll be more likely to consume that than a 30-minute speech. So, so far, so good. I think uh, Michelle Obama's speech was so urgent and raw, actionable. And, you know, she gave wonderful speeches in 2008 and 2012, but I think this one was the strongest speech she's ever given. And for someone who does not like politics, and that's just on the line, she doesn't. I think that's why she's such an effective communicator. She doesn't talk like a politician. Uh, but her urgency is something we should all, I think, uh, carry forward uh, because uh, it was uh, startling, I think, to hear from her um, the stakes of this election, our role in this election. And, um, you know, I've certainly heard that, you know, online and off from her in the past, but it was a captivating uh, performance that I, I think will have real impact. And I thought her really uh, demand of self all at the end to request your absentee ballot today, uh, vote today, get in, was was so terrific and something I think we need to see for the rest of the convention. Um, I think we'll see from Barack Obama tonight. You'll all see that. Hopefully, by the time you listen to this podcast, you will have seen it uh, or be preparing to watch it, you know, afterwards. But um, I think it will be an urgent mission and, and message to the American people uh, on both the stakes of this election, Joe Biden's unique suitability to be our president at this moment. Uh, he can speak like nobody else about the qualities and, and attributes Joe Biden will bring to the presidency uh, because he relied on him and saw them up close. Uh, and also, I think, an urgent call to to protect and fight for our democracy. Um, so uh, I think that'll be a helpful speech. Really interested to see Kamala Harris's speech where she will need to both introduce herself but continue to do the job of introducing uh, Joe Biden. And of course, a vice presidential nominee usually has a few less than kind words for their opponents. So we'll see what uh, new material she has uh, to bring out against Trump and Pence. Uh, and But the most important uh, moment by far of the convention will be Joe Biden's speech, um, where I think uh, what we'll see there is, is hopefully um, a, a better uh, sense from him to the American people about what he'll do as president. You know, he talks about it all the time, but this is his best chance uh, with the biggest audience to date uh, to reintroduce himself to the American people, um, both in terms of biography and character and values, which are such important underpinnings, uh, but really get specific about what he'll do as president. So I'm sure there'll be um, some funny and, and good barbs and serious contrast with Donald Trump, but I think his most important job is to really give those people who are leaning his way or have sort of decided uh, they're going to abandon Trump or uh, maybe they'll register for the first time uh, to feel even more excited about that and confident in their choice. Um, we continue to see um, Trump's attack on our democracy, you know, most urgently around the issues of the post office, where um, we've seen a lot of equipment being removed. Uh, we've seen issues with overtime. Uh, we've got the post office telling states they likely won't be able to process ballots in time. Uh, we've seen, you know, mailboxes uh, being taken out all over the United States. The post office uh, general, uh, Louis DeJoy, uh, said yesterday on Tuesday that he's going to cease all of this nonsense. Uh, Democrats should not take any solace from that. The damage has already been done. I would expect him to continue to do more damage. And, you know, Democrats in Congress have to stick with this. They have to treat this as their own campaign to really uh, bring Trump and DeJoy to heal, to make them surrender. Uh, and the standard here is, you know, if in 2018 or 16 or 14 or 12 or 10, you know, it took two or three days to get your prescription drugs or, um, you know, your social security check 
or send in your uh, absentee ballot, uh, or get a letter from your family member. It should take the same amount of time now. So this isn't, we'll stop doing bad things because they probably won't. We'll do our best, not good enough. Uh, This has to be done exactly as it should be done. Uh, And Democrats uh, can accept, you know, no half measures here. Uh, There has to be hearing after hearing, if that's what is required, subpoena after subpoena. Every member of Congress, every governor, every senator should be doing press events every day with people who've been affected by the post office uh, malfeasance. Um, They just need to be all over this. Uh, Because at the end of the day, I also think even a lot of Trump voters probably don't think we should be messing with the post office. Some do, most don't. So this is not a helpful political dynamic for Trump. So let's make him pay as much damage as he can for his illegal efforts to hold on to power. Uh, But we've got to make sure that, um, again, separate than the election, the post office should work the way we need it to work for people because so many people rely on it. Uh, But why this is important electorally is um, a lot of states, including five out of the six core battlegrounds, if you're ballot is not returned by election day, comes in the day after the election, it doesn't count. And so if uh, it takes five, seven or eight days for ballots to come in, a lot of people think they're sending them in with plenty of time and they won't. And again, we saw in some of these June primaries, um, you know, eight to 10% of of ballots getting spoiled. So uh, that's how, you know, it's not good for democracy. Uh, whatever party you you support. Uh, but uh, again, that's how I think a close election could be lost. So um, it is just not acceptable. Uh, this can't be uh, a case where Democrats are, you know, sending a lot of letters and saying that, you know, they're pleased with statements that uh, DeJoy's made, uh, that he's going to stop monkeying around. No, um, you just got to drive this to the ground with ferocity uh, and intensity. And all of us also need to be vigilant, you know, in lifting up our own voices uh, in that regard. So uh, another reason why, um, you know, even with polls showing Biden with a comfortable lead, it could tighten. I think it will. I've said that before. You know, national polls out this week, which, again, aren't as important as battleground state polls, but 50-41 Biden, that's good. Where's the other nine going to go? I think more of that goes home to Trump. We know he's going to outperform the national polls in the battleground states. And, you know, Trump is going to try and make it harder for people to vote. He's going to make it harder for people to trust that their vote's going to count. And he's just trying to do everything he can to confuse the electorate. Now, there's some evidence out of the Florida primary this week that Republican voting by mail was down. So he's also, you know, I've spoken about this before. It's dumb politically because he needs as many votes by mail as we do. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of, you know, Republican voters vote traditionally by mail in a lot of these states. And there's plenty of Democrats, too. But there's going to be a lot of people who maybe this is the first time they've ever voted and it's by mail or someone who's only voted in a polling location and they're voting by mail. They're not familiar with the rules. So, you know, we're all going to have to be all over this uh, and do a great amount of education. And, you know, I think Michelle Obama's uh, speech was the right tone, which is we cannot take a single vote for granted. Uh, We have to treat them all preciously and, and we all have to do our part. I'm excited for our conversation today with Susan Rice. Susan was on Joe Biden's shortlist not surprisingly, uh, given her, her strength and what she would bring uh, to the ticket, was on Joe Biden's vice presidential shortlist. She has a, a long and storied career uh, on in service to our country, you know, led a lot of uh, Bill Clinton's work in Africa during the 1990s. Um, in Barack Obama's administration was both our uh, representative at the United Nations uh, and served as national security advisor. So I really want to talk to Susan today about foreign policy as it relates to this election. What are the core arguments, uh, you know, on behalf of Joe Biden and against Donald Trump? We, Susan, and many diplomats uh, and, and foreign policy leaders in our country have spent uh, a lot of their time uh, trying to talk to others in the world about free and fair elections and democratic institutions and freedom of the press and the damage Trump's done because everyone around the world uh, looks at what we're doing here and it seems to be counter to everything we've uh, stood for. Uh, talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. Susan has spoken powerfully about this, that it uh, really was such a powerful moment, obviously within this country, but around the world. Uh, and you saw uh, people around the world joining in you know, peaceful protests and civil disobedience, but also reminded people what uh, is special about America. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation with uh, Susan Rice, someone who uh, I loved working with back in the day. Uh, she's brilliant. She's tough. Uh, she's strategic. 
um, but she um, has a huge heart and, and that's why she does this work is to try and better the lives of people uh, both within this country and all around the world. Susan Rice, thank you so much for being on Campaign HQ. It's great to be with you, David. You must have had an interesting few weeks. <laughs> yeah, things are a little bit uh, quieter now than they were a few weeks ago. <laughs> well, listen, I, I want to start. Actually, we were talking in the middle of the Democratic convention with the Republican convention next week. And, you know, conventions are really your best opportunity because they're not a debate really to just make an argument, you know, on your own behalf and uh, contrast that with your opponents. You know, we had John Kerry last night, Colin Powell. So I think, you know, people who are watching are getting a sense of this. But one of the things, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you've been such a brilliant substantive leader, but also understand that how you communicate foreign policy and its consequences is important. Like if you had 30 seconds with a voter who says, you know, I'm really torn about this election, how would you distill from a foreign policy standpoint, what the best argument it is for Joe Biden and what it means in their lives? Well, Americans, like everybody else, they want to be safe and they want to be uh, confident that they have uh, a bright future. The way the United States has a strong, safe uh, and prosperous future in the world is if we have friends and allies who are willing and able to work with us to get things done that matter to the American people, whether it's fighting a pandemic dealing with climate change or terrorists, dealing with a rising and more aggressive China, pushing back on a, uh, a Russia that seeks to undermine our democracy. We can't do any of that effectively without our friends and allies. And the single most damaging thing that Donald Trump has done for us internationally is to sow distrust and fear and resentment among America's allies and partners. They do not trust Donald Trump. They do not want to work with Donald Trump's America. Uh, they do not believe that our interests and our values align anymore. And we can't lead if others won't follow. And that's the great danger that Donald Trump has done. In addition, he's elevated and, and heralded our adversaries, given uh, Xi Jinping of China and Vladimir Putin of Russia and Kim Jong-un of North Korea, the red carpet treatment. Um, and meanwhile, he's just antagonized and denigrated our closest allies. It's very, very dangerous to everything we want to accomplish in the world. That's why not Donald Trump. Let me just say why Joe Biden. Why Joe Biden? Because uniquely, Joe Biden has the experience, the personal relationships with our closest friends and allies and their leaders, um, the integrity the decency, the respect for the role that the United States can and must play in the world, and you know, a commitment to our alliance relationships that goes back 40 years. They know him, they trust him, and they, they, he of all people can help us put this huge mess that Donald Trump has created back together. And, and so that's why, among so many other reasons, all the right policies, the right team he'll have around him, but Joe Biden himself, is uniquely positioned to help us dig out of this ditch. Yeah. I mean, the moment seems really tailor-made for him in a way, maybe 18 months ago, you would have said a little less so. So Susan, back in 2008, when you were advising uh, then Senator Obama, uh, and I was working on the campaign, uh, I think it always surprised pundits that we would say, um, there's swing voters out there, man, maybe people who didn't pay much attention to politics, who one of the reasons they're for Obama is they want us to be respected in the world again. Now, you know, George W. Bush did not set out to burn our alliances. I think Donald Trump, you know, that's kind of his signature foreign policy. But I'm curious in terms of making that argument, and you just laid out, I think, on both sides, really compelling messages for people to take out uh, into their work on behalf of Joe Biden. You know, you, this pandemic we're in right now, and, and you led the effort to set up the pandemic response uh, effort uh, in office that, uh, you know, Donald Trump got rid of. I mean, bring this home for people. Like, we obviously see the rest of the world who are going back to school, they're going back to work, they're going back to sporting events. We alone right now uh, seem still in the grips of this. How could this have been different? And how does that tie back to Donald Trump's uh, kind of America first, America only? He doesn't trust our allies. Uh, tell us that story, if you wouldn't mind. David, the sorry truth is so many more thousands of Americans have died than needed to die 
so many more millions of Americans have been infected and will have, you know, uh, perhaps long-term health consequences. Our economy is in the worst uh, recession since the Great Depression, and our kids can't go back to school safely. And the reason for that boils down to failed leadership by Donald Trump and his White House. Now, it's fair to say that, you know, nobody um, could have prevented a pandemic from arising at some point in some place in the globe. But as you point out, the way that every, virtually every other country except Brazil and, and Russia have handled it indicate that a competent government can and should have mitigated its worst consequences. And Donald Trump has failed to do so. And this has enormous implications, uh, not only for the health and the, and the well-being of Americans and, and their livelihoods uh, and the education of their kids, but when the world looks to the United States, you know, it's one more, you know, indicator that we have fallen so far so fast. We have proven ourselves utterly incompetent, uh, incompetent to test, incompetent to um, reopen our economy, incompetent to source personal protective equipment in sufficient quantities and distribute them rationally. I mean, we've created a free-for-all where every state and locality has to compete against another uh, for essential supplies, whether ventilators or masks, because Donald Trump refuses to employ the tools that the federal government has to make rational procurement and distribution decisions. I mean, it's just about as big a mess as it could be. And when it comes to our allies and partners, again, whom we may ask the next time we face a rising ISIS or the next time China uh, you know, tries to take over territory in the South China Sea or start a trade war or whatever it is that we're going to need them to join with us and, and heed our call when we say, look, this is a time when we all have to come together. They're going to look at us and say, if Donald Trump has got four more years, what are you talking about? You don't share our values. You can't get anything done. You're not, you know, you're a paper tiger. So forget it. And they're already beginning to say that on any number of issues, um, in, including right now this week when, just to get into a small matter, but the administration is going to walk into the United Nations Security Council later this week and having abandoned the Iran nuclear deal, withdrawn from the deal in 2018. We're now going to say to the world, but oh, for the purpose of putting sanctions back on Iran, we're still a participant in the deal. And we are going to be utterly isolated. Um, and that we've been isolated every step of the way on climate, on issues like this of nonproliferation. And now we're isolating ourselves on the pandemic. And the other danger of this, David, it's that Americans need to understand when it comes to the pandemic, we aren't going to be safe and, and secure against this virus here in the United States uh, simply by vaccinating a majority of Americans and getting to so-called herd immunity in the United States. We've got to get to herd immunity globally because diseases don't respect borders. And if we don't lock it down everywhere, it can mutate and come back around and reinfect Americans. So we have to lead internationally on vaccines, on their distribution, on providing the kinds of support to the countries that need it most to stamp it out globally. And Donald Trump seems to have absolutely no understanding of that, as evidenced by his withdrawal from the WHO, which is the organization, despite its flaws, that can help ensure that there's global access to a coronavirus vaccine. Well. He has zero understanding of it or awareness. He's never spoken about it. And it seems to me this will be an important point for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to really pound on, you know, over the next 11 weeks. Uh, Susan, I'm curious, when you think Trump has such ardor for Xi Jinping and Orban and Hungary and Putin, Kim Jong-un, um, Balasano, where does this come from? And it's almost like he's got a schoolboy crush on these dictators. Is it because this is how he would like to rule? He would like to be an autocrat? Does he admire them because there are no boundaries? I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this. Like, where does this come from? <laughs> I can't psychoanalyze the man. Look, uh, by any, any standard, he is not 
playing with the kinds of constraints and faculties and concerns and empathy and decency that uh, we have come to rightly expect in our presidents, regardless of party. He is, by any definition, an outlier. And he himself has continually exhibited uh, a desire to govern autocratically, whether it's, you know, employing the Justice Department against his political adversaries, uh, whether it's, you know, evading congressional oversight and refusing to respond to subpoenas, putting federal forces in unmarked uniforms onto the streets of our cities to terrorize and beat unarmed protesters, uh, or trying to, you know, manipulate the very basic underpinnings of our democracy by trying to delegitimize um, mail-in absentee balloting or, or any other form uh, of casting a vote that he fears might not be for him. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. So that's clearly who he is, which is certainly a one plausible explanation for why he's most drawn to leaders who govern autocratically elsewhere. I think he's got some great fantasy that he's uh, a, a, a supreme leader uh, and that whatever he says goes. And, and he, he gives indications of that every day. And maybe he's just jealous that there actually are still in this country laws and rules and constraints on power, much as he's doing his utmost to break them. I think he finds that all highly inconvenient. So, Susan, you've spent, um, you know, most of your adult life uh, engaged in efforts around the globe, uh, you know, to strengthen free and fair elections and freedom of the press and the rule of law. And, you know, if you think about, you know, hopefully it's Joe Biden's next four, eight years, the president after that, the damage that must have been done around the world, like no one's going to listen to us about any of that. You know, given Trump's approach to attacking the press, now he's trying to, you know, hurt the main way most people are going to vote uh, this election, um, the U.S. Postal Service. Talk about that a little bit, the discordance between, you know, the work that's been done over the previous few decades and these last three years. I mean, there's the old expression, uh, you know. Uh, any jackass can tear down a barn. It takes a carpenter to build one. Um, all the work we've done uh, all these years seems like, you know, maybe it's not eroded forever, but it's going to be a long time before we can get the credibility back to have those types of diplomatic conversations, it seems to me. Well, there's absolutely no doubt, David, that Donald Trump has done enormous damage uh, to our moral leadership in the world, to our ability to speak credibly about democracy and respect for human rights and freedom of the press and freedom of religion and, you know, the rights of, of women and minorities and the sanctity of the vote. You name it. I could go down the whole list. He's done enormous damage. Um, and if he's given four more years in office, I believe that damage will be irreparable because I think the countries that is still share the values that, that, that are traditional uh, universal values and American values. Um, will look at us and say that, you know, we're a lost cause. Um, and, uh, but I do think, and this is one of the many, many reasons why I am so committed to seeing Joe Biden become our next president, that electing Joe Biden is the first and necessary step to changing that dynamic, to enabling us to lead again with efficacy and credibility, including um, restoring and refreshing our moral leadership. For all the reasons that I said at the outset, uh, you know, he has the relationships, he has the experience, he has the credibility. He has stood up for and fought for our values throughout his entire career, uh, like his predecessors. Um, so I, uh, I think this is electing Joe Biden is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And we do need to recognize that a lot of damage has been done and it will take time. It will take humility. It'll take patience. Uh, to build back that confidence. And it's, you know, with all the best effort, it's not going to be done in one term of one presidency. It's going to take much longer than that, because if you're sitting in Berlin or in Madrid uh, or in uh, Tel Aviv, for that matter, and you're wondering, uh, you know, what America can we uh, expect? What America can we depend on? Um, you have to wonder if, if the United States electorate delivered Donald Trump and all that he stands for in 2016, 
what's preventing that from happening again in 2024 or 2028? That's such a great point. You know, that confidence has been seriously shaken in a lasting way, not irreparably, I believe. And it's going to take not just Joe Biden, but you know, all of the, the capable people that he will have around him from Kamala Harris to whomever he puts in his White House and his cabinet to be part of uh, building back and refreshing and renewing our leadership. But it's going to be it's going to be a real task. And as I said earlier, nobody's better equipped to undertake it than Joe Biden. Right. No, you make such a great point. I mean, I think our allies will be hopeful, but we're still going to be on probation for a while. So, Susan, our uh, former boss, uh, Barack Obama, I'm sure will have some things to say about Joe Biden tonight in terms of his um, the real capabilities he brings to the presidency. You know, you uh, were the national security advisor. You spent uh, probably more time, um, you know, in the situation room than anywhere else in your life during those years. You've obviously played other senior roles. Talk a little bit. I'm always surprised when I talk to, you know, friends of mine who, some even in politics, but certainly those that aren't, you know, they, they there's a sense, I think, you know, particularly today with social media, that, you know, the presidency is about, you know, great speech making, that's important, winning debates, that's important, you know, using social media, it's all important. I'm not denying that. But basically, you know, it's it's running meetings, it's hiring good people, it's um, allowing dissent, it's making lonely decisions. Just you have you have such a unique vantage point uh, to understand what the presidency is and what it isn't. And I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. And again, expand a little bit on why you think Biden uh, is such a great match for the moment we find ourselves in. Well, we heard Michelle Obama the other night talk a bit about what it is to be the president, having seen it very up close and personal. Um, and obviously, she's seen it even more up close and personal than I have. But you're right. I, I have seen it. And, and, and it's something that I think many Americans may not fully appreciate. It's, it requires um, guts. It requires a quiet confidence. Um, the opposite of what we see in, in Donald Trump's neediness, insecurity, and, and, and paranoia. It requires a capacity to, to be curious and to absorb uh, massive amounts of information and then figure out what among that is most important. And then it requires real judgment and integrity and a willingness to make decisions that may be personally or politically uh, disadvantageous to you personally as president, but the right decisions for the country. And so with President Obama, I saw him do that all day, every day. Now, let me give you one example that many people will have forgotten. Um, 2014, we're dealing with the Ebola epidemic. It's raging in West Africa. The Centers for Disease Control tells President Obama and all of us uh, sitting around the table in the White House Situation Room that this is now late August of 2014, that if by if we don't act quickly to change the trajectory of the virus, that up to an over one million people could die in West Africa. And that's just in West Africa, not uh uh, not the rest of the world where it had real potential to spread. And as you'll remember, we had a couple of infections here in the United States, and we moved very quickly to try to uh, set up mechanisms to ensure that you know a handful of hospitals had the particular capacity that you need to safely treat Ebola, and that we were able to make sure that travelers coming from around the world, but particularly from West Africa, weren't able to, to fly in uh, and disappear and, and spread the virus uh, throughout the country. People were freaking out about this virus. Republicans in Congress, and you'll remember this was a midterm election year, were calling for the borders to be shut down entirely. Don't let anybody who's been to West Africa, whether an American citizen or a green card holder, a healthcare worker, anybody come back, including our 3,000 American service members who we sent over there to help create the logistics support to enable healthcare workers from Africa and around the world to, to treat the virus effectively. And he was under, President Obama was under enormous pressure just to shut down the borders, which would have had very, very adverse consequences. Now, people need to understand, Ebola is a different disease 
from uh, coronavirus. You can't transmit it, you know, through coughing or breathing. You know, you have to have an exchange of bodily fluids. So it's harder to transmit, even though it's much more deadly. Um, and, you know, and they also need to understand that despite Donald Trump claiming that he shut down the border from China and shut down the border, you know, shut down travel from Europe and therefore that saved millions of lives. Well, obviously it didn't because the virus was already here and 400,000 travelers, you know, came to the United States from China between December and March of, of this year. Um, and as a- Andrew Cuomo likes to say, it wasn't the Chinese version of the virus. It was a European version of the virus that lit up New York State and the entire East Coast. So shutting down borders doesn't work. And the scientists were telling President Obama it will not work. It'll just cause people to sneak in, whether across the land borders with Canada and Mexico or whatever. It's not going to work. And he was under a huge amount of political pressure to, and from some even inside the administration, to shut down the borders and make it impossible for anybody who'd been to West Africa to get back in the United States. And he resisted that pressure because it would have made matters worse. And it would have been politically palatable to do it, popular, but scientifically and practically very counterproductive. Donald Trump was screaming to shut down the borders. He was wrong. Obama made the tough decision, but the right decision. And at the end of the day, David, as few people will recall, only two people died in this country of the Ebola virus. Compare that to over 170,000 and counting. And we were able to send healthcare workers over there to be helpful and come back safely. We were able to funnel in travelers and screen them and monitor them very, very carefully throughout the entire incubation period of 21 days. We managed that through skill, through science, and, and through you know, making the tough decisions. That's the difference between a president who's seriously serving the, the national interest and what we have today, which is one who's serving his personal political interests and, and arguably financial interests. Now, then take Joe Biden, who is you know, very much involved in our response to the Ebola epidemic and every other serious national security issue uh, that we faced during the eight years of the Obama administration. He, too, is guided by what's right for this country. He's guided by science and fact and reason and expertise. Um, and he has all of the tools also to be the kind of president that we need, particularly in a crisis when every misstep counts and costs lives. Well, that dirt definitely, Susan, uh, really paints the stakes of this election. Well, the other thing about the Ebola crisis, I mean, you all led an effort, diplomatic effort around the world to get resources, doctors. I think you even convinced the Cubans to send doctors to West Africa. So think about that, which is basically, yes, you made the right decisions here at home, but you're doing everything you can to help there, as opposed to Trump, who basically isolated America, <laughs> you know, and has not tried to solve this crisis uh, in, a, in, a, in a global way. Uh, I'm curious, um, you know, it is interesting on the, you know, people, as you know, always say, oh, it must just be like the West Wing television show when you worked on it. Yeah, many days you do, but what people don't know, anything that comes to that floor, you and I both worked on in the West Wing or the Situation Room, just by definition is hard and kind of sucks. I mean, it's just like, so, you know, know, Joe Biden, you know, yeah, maybe occasionally he stutters when he answers a question. He's just not going to stutter in like running good process and making good decisions, right? And and that's what I think we really need to center people on. Uh, Susan, I heard you speak about this recently, uh, and it was really compelling to me. Uh, You mentioned in an interview that the Black Lives Matter movement here and all the remarkable protests and advocacy we've seen uh, really has been for the first time during the Trump years. It's given hope to the rest of the world that we're not lost. Uh, Speak about that a little bit, because that that really struck me as something that was um, really, uh, you know, optimistic and interesting and something that I think uh, more people should understand the value of what these as important as it is to change laws here and practices here. It also is uh, really helpful for our image abroad. Well, it's helpful to our image abroad for the world to see that even where we fall short in contrast to our ideals of equality and justice, that the American people still have the, the, the guts and the capacity to come together and demand that we do better. And the movement that we saw 
arise after George Floyd's murder, as you know, was multiracial, multigenerational. It spanned every state in this country, uh, in rural areas and urban areas. And the protests were, were almost uh, entirely, uh, or at least largely, peaceful. And they had a real purpose to them, which was to say once and for all that every human life has equal value, regardless of the color of the person's skin. The notion that you hear from some that you know, if you say black lives matter, you're saying other lives don't matter is so profoundly wrong and offensive. What it's saying is black lives matter as much as white lives. Every life matters. But Black Lives Matter as much as any other life. And that's not been the way our uh, story has played out over the last 400 years in every respect. And so, you know, uh, you know obviously we've made, in my judgment, in, important and, and critical progress over the generations. But we have so much more distance to go, whether we're talking about criminal justice or economic and health disparities. Uh, or educational inequality, uh, the prospects for economic mobility. Um, you, you go housing, environmental conditions, you go run across the gamut. And in so many ways, we still have very substantial disparities that are a function both of race and our socioeconomic inequalities that uh, affect people of, of different races who are at the bottom of the economic spectrum brown people, black people, white people, native people, um, it, everybody. And so when we came together in this amazing way as Americans across all of these different dimensions and demanded peacefully that we finally start to achieve progress, not only on criminal justice, but on many of these other dimensions, the world did stand up and say, wow, and what about what's going on here in our own countries? We've got some of these issues. You know, France has got issues. You know, uh, the UK has got issues. Everybody's got issues of certain sort that revolve around these historic disparities. And they were inspired to ask and demand better in their own countries. And this movement, as you know, spanned the globe. Um, and so even when at the top of our government, we've got the most immoral, corrupt, uh, self-interested leadership. The power of popular opinion is still very compelling. And the vibrancy of American civil society is not to be discounted in its capacity to inspire civil society and popular engagement elsewhere in the world. So look at Belarus today. I, I'm not here to suggest that, you know, it was the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, you know, uh, protest that inspired people in Belarus. but there's a country where we've had 26 years of dictatorship and a completely or almost completely dormant uh, popular reaction. And the, the, the people being frustrated with autocracy, with a failure to deal with the coronavirus uh, and a number of other festering issues has led to the vast numbers of Belarusians coming into the street, also peacefully demonstrating and demanding that there be legitimate leadership born of the popular will of the people. We'll see how it plays out. But, you know, it, it is extraordinary to witness in so many different places. Uh, you know, we saw it in, in Khartoum, Sudan, in the last few years. We've seen it in Algeria. We've seen it in so many places where civil society, peaceful protesters are coming together to demand progress. And I'm glad to see the United States even as we're failing at the top, showing our our chops, you know, at the at the grassroots level. It's so inspiring, and I think it does give hope to our allies that we are on the verge of coming out of this dark period. So, not that folks here who are involved in all this important racial justice work need more reason to stay with it, but this is another reason that it's it's having an impact outside of our borders. So, Susan, let's talk about uh, two scenarios. The first is a happy scenario. So, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win. Maybe we'll know that November 3rd. Maybe we'll know it sometime deeper in November. Trump will complain and call it illegitimate, but he gets on his helicopter and flies away finally on January 20th. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris 
have taken office. Maybe you'll be their secretary of state. We'll see. Uh, if you, but I'm curious when you think about something like you made a great point, like to really uh, get um, safe uh, from this COVID-19 crisis. Um, it's not just what we do here. The world has to be vaccinated for America to be safe. So this is probably a great example of, uh, you know, as, as significant and a large an interagency process as the U.S. government will have. So in a scenario where we actually have enough trials done, enough confidence that we can be in scaling production and distribution, talk about what that would look like in 2021. Let's hope it's 2021 or early 22. Just the all the complexity uh, to make sure we're doing the right things here in a fair way and a quick way, uh, in a way we measure. We're obviously also working with all of our allies uh, on these questions. Talk about that a little bit, because I think, you know, we all want Joe Biden to win. I think we should all be really uh, clear what he's getting into if he wins, <laughs> right? Which is, yes, an economy in distress, alliances in tatters, climate change, just about at the point we can't turn it back. But we also have this pandemic that we won't make progress on any of that, really, unless we get a hold of that. So uh, he's going to need the best and brightest working on this. But but talk a little bit about what will go into that. Well, David, I think, first of all, people need to understand that leadership matters enormously. But over the course of the year, let's hope it will have been a year in 2021 when Joe Biden is sworn in. It'll have been a year since the pandemic really hit. Uh, a great deal of, of damage has been done. A lot of setbacks have we've suffered that we didn't necessarily need to suffer. So what he's going to have to do at the outset is it, it will come back to the vaccine for a second, as important as that is, but he's going to have to set a tone at the top that we are going to be guided by science and by facts and by reality. Uh, and he's going to have to lead as he is so capable of doing with clarity about the things that Americans need to do. We cannot safely reopen our economy and our schools until we really bend that curve down to almost zero and take the steps that are necessary to keep it that way. And that means that, you know, we can't have a patchwork set of uh, approaches that vary from state to state. Now, states do have a high degree of, of uh, independence in this regard, but they've been granted this sort of jungle mentality licensed by Trump to just do what the hell they want to do. In fact, we need the White House to say masks should be mandatory. Distancing is essential. You cannot go to bars and eat indoors at restaurants when, if you're in your community, the positivity rate is above 10%. That's just too dangerous. And so we're going to need leadership that really calls it straight on what's necessary. Because you're absolutely right, David, getting the pandemic under control is the prerequisite for sustainable economic recovery and for our kids going back to school. So all of those things that we're failing to do and communicate and, and implement now effectively are still going to be needed in January of next year. And then let's hope that Dr. Fauci is right, that by early next year, there will be, and it will be a miracle if, if this is the case, um, but a vaccine or vaccines that are proven to be both effective and safe. And if that is the case, then the challenge will be, uh, and they may come from more than one producer, if we're lucky, the challenge will be to scale up that production uh, rapidly. And that's hugely difficult. It's a logistical challenge, it's a financial challenge. And then you have to have a thoughtful strategy about who gets vaccinated first. You know, frontline healthcare workers, first responders, people who work in high-risk industries, whether they're truck drivers or grocery workers or meat packers. Um, and, you know, and then what about teachers and blah, blah, blah. You have to have a very thought-out approach to how we roll out the vaccine and scale it up. And then, as I said earlier, uh, work with other countries, work with the World Health Organization, work with uh, countries like China. And that, 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 you know, we're now in a, in a cold conflict with, but whose resources and capacities are essential for us to collaborate with if we are going to address this concern globally. Our European partners, the Japanese, uh, yeah, I could go down the list, but, you know, we're going to need, as we did with the Ebola 
epidemic. All the capable countries in the world to, to join together, not to have a Hobbesian battle for who has the vaccine, but to en- enable it to be as widely available as possible, as quickly as possible, for the very reason that I said that until that is the case, we are all at some degree of continued risk. So it, the, the challenge is going to be massive. But the good news is that Joe Biden gets what it involves, that he has very concrete and specific plans that he's laid out to address it, and that he's going to have around him, David, experienced, competent, credible uh, teammates, who many of whom have done some version of this before uh, and who understand what it takes to, to address this pandemic effectively. Well, Susan, my last question uh, is connected to the what you just said. So uh, in your answer there, it's scary to think about all the things you just mentioned that have to happen if Donald Trump gets reelected. So for those people listening uh, to this podcast, uh, they don't necessarily need more motivation to work for Joe Biden. But, you know, when they're thinking about maybe they'll make an hour less calls or, you know, maybe they won't write that last postcard. Uh, I'd like this for you to describe if Donald Trump wins and he will never have to face the voters again. um, And clearly he has no respect for any of our uh, boundaries or rule of law, you know, particularly in areas that you are expert on, what would concern you the most? Like what could happen over the next four years? I mean, sometimes when I say the whole enterprise is on the line, people will say, well, that's an exaggeration. We're resilient. I mean, we never thought the post office would be under attack right before an election, right? So uh, to me, there is no low. There is no um, scenario here that's too um, crazy to think about. But so you just mentioned, you know, part of what's so exciting about a Joe Biden presidency is hopefully he'll lead us out of this pandemic and all the hard work there. But where would Trump take uh, our foreign policy uh, and really the world if he has a full eight years? David, I, I hate to even contemplate that question. But we have to. I know, we have I know, to. You know, 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 that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But I, it just it's like a parade of horribles. Start with the pandemic. Absolutely, utterly failed leadership. No reason to think that will change. And the longer this persists, the more people who die, the more people who are permanently damaged, the longer and deeper our our economy remains in the ditch, and the longer we have a lost generation of students who aren't going to school. But beyond that, David, from the fact that he is you know, waging war on our environment and the climate and will take further steps. We just saw this week opening up the the Alaskan Wildlife Reserve. You know, he will accelerate the ruination of the planet and maybe make it irreversible. He will give license to Vladimir Putin to do whatever he wants to do, which seems to be boundless, including potentially taking the opportunity to threaten our allies in NATO. I fear he will pull the United States out of NATO. I think that he will, uh, you know, stumble in potentially to a hot conflict with China out of ignorance and stupidity, but do so without our allies joining with us. Our alliances will be wrecked. And I think that it will, and I don't think this is, overly dramatic. I think it will be the death knell of our democracy here in this country and our national unity. And with the death knell for our democracy, uh, the erosion of that form of government as a credible form of government globally. I think it's very hard for democracy to thrive elsewhere if it fails here in the United States. So it is a parade of horribles. Uh, and I'm only just giving you a, you know, a few greatest hits uh, th- that I don't think are beyond the conceivable and that I truly believe uh, are at stake in this election. This, David, is, and everybody agrees, Donald Trump is saying this, this is the most consequential election of our lifetime. Much more so than the one you and I worked on together in 2008, as extraordinary as that was. And, you know, and it's consequential for Trump. Because in his view, it's an opportunity to finish the destruction of our democracy and our global leadership to his personal and political and financial benefit. 
to do God knows whose foreign adversaries bidding and uh, to leave us a country that, that can't recover. You know, why do you think it's so urgent in his mind that, that he'd be reelected when he can't even articulate what he would do with a second term in terms of policy? I think just contra- I think all I'm going to say to wrap this up, look at our convention this week, the Democratic Convention. And what it says about a vision of America that's unified, that's diverse, that's inclusive, that brings together all of the fabrics, all of the threads in the fabric of our society and celebrates that and believes that those threads woven together make us far stronger. And then watch what we're going to see next week, which is going to be about division and fear and hatred and demonization of the other and a few token black and brown people skillfully placed behind Donald Trump to give the illusion of diversity when in reality, the opposite is what he seeks. Right. I think that's exactly what we'll see. Well, Susan, your, uh, I think, frightening but very real list of parade of horribles is why we all need to really follow Michelle Obama's marching orders, which is we need to vote as if our life depends on it. Because if you Amen. listen, when you listen to what could happen in the next four years, um, you know, we won't recognize this country, we may not recognize ourselves. And, you know, you only have to be a casual student of history to understand that, you know, empires don't last forever, not that we're an empire. Uh, and I think, you know, this was all thinner than we realized pre Trump. Um, the line between autocracy and democracy, um, how resilient our democracy is. So it's all on the line, uh, as she said. And so I think you captured it incredibly well. Well, Susan, thank you for your leadership and your public service through the years, uh, the voice you're bringing to this campaign, which I think is is an urgent one and an important one is, I think, really focusing a lot of people's attention and causing them uh, to be more involved in the campaign. Uh, and if Joe Biden wins, hopefully in whatever way you see fit, uh, you'll help him dig us out of this mess. Well, David, thank you so much. And I want people to realize that, you know, as bad as losing would be, winning is, you know, is really the flip side of that right. in so many ways. It gives us the opportunity to, to come back together and be the nation that we have the potential to be strong, unified, principled, uh, and respected again. And, you know, that is achievable. We just have to all do our best. We have to bust our behinds to get this done. And Michelle Obama put it perfectly. Our lives do depend on it in, in very real ways. Uh, and our integrity and, and viability as a unitary nation depend on it. So let's do this like we've done nothing else before with all of our energy, all of our commitment, and with no fear. We just have to leave it all on the field. Absolutely. Let's go win this thing, as Barack Obama, I'm sure, will say tonight. <laughs> all right, Susan. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. 